You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. Well, we're, uh, as you may know, kind of between sermon series, and we just finished uh, the book of Titus, and as of next week, we'll be jumping into the book of Genesis, uh, which causes everybody I tell to ask, when is that going to end? I, I mean, it hasn't even started, and everybody's like, when is that going to end? Um, and the only answer that I can really reasonably think of is sometime probably around the day Jesus comes back, um, either because we wrapped up or because he was like, all right, that's enough. Um, but for this week, we are uh, going to do something a little bit different. We want to basically kind of clue you in on where the heart of the elder team has been looking forward to this next year. Um, the things particularly that we feel we as a church can grow in, want to grow in, and, and that's not to say that this is an exhaustive list of areas where we need to grow as a church because uh, we, we need to grow in every way, uh, but there are some particular areas where we just see that we need to grow and have a particular desire to grow and, uh, and we believe that those things are in your heart as well. So we'll, we'll talk about those things this morning and, and just kind of the mission of our church as we move forward. Uh, so what I'm going to ask you to do is turn to the book of Acts and go to a really familiar passage that you've never heard talked about, <laughs> Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And just as we normally do, I'll read this out loud if you would follow along, and then we'll uh, stop and again just ask the Lord to help us. So Acts chapter 2, if you're kind of new to the scriptures, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts in the New Testament. All right, Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. This is speaking about the church in the earliest days in Jerusalem, Uh, Jesus has died, been buried, been resurrected. He has shown himself to many people and then ascended back to heaven to the Father. He sent the Holy Spirit to fill the church and and cause them to be filled with uh, joy and with peace and with zeal for him, passion for his name. And this community is being formed there in Jerusalem that is a a community that's formed by belief in Christ. So here's a description of what life was like. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, we, we are seeking to devote our full attention to you now, to hear from you through your word, 
by your Holy Spirit speaking to us. Please give us this, Lord. Please cause every one of us to be engaged by you, to be caught off guard even, to have a surprising level of contact with you this morning in our hearts, that no one would leave this place without believing that you were here, that you spoke clearly, that you love us and have plans for us. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it's powerful. Thank you that it cuts deep. Thank you that it soothes like nothing else. And we're believing, Lord, that this morning you would teach us from your word and that the things that we learn would be things that would fuel us and empower us, strengthen us, train us to live lives that glorify you. As we're looking forward to this year, Lord, we ask that it would be a year dedicated to your glory, that in this year we would honor you, we would be pleased and satisfied with you, that you would be pleased and satisfied with us, that we would fellowship together and pray and speak about you and learn about you in ways that you're pleased with, that you enjoy. Help us now, please, to hear only from you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, the elders came together uh, several weeks ago, and, and we decided that we needed to come up with a statement, which is not unusual for churches to do. It's normally called a mission statement. It just kind of encapsulates what you're all about, what we're working for, gathering for, why are we all here. And, and the statement that we came up with is really pulled straight out of Scripture, from Ephesians 3. This is the statement, and then I'll read the scripture for you that we took it from. The statement is that we want to make the glory and infinite wisdom of Jesus Christ known to his creation. There's really no loftier goal. There's no other purpose for why the church is left here in the world than to make the glory and infinite wisdom of Jesus Christ known to his creation. Ephesians 3 Uh, verses 7 through 12 says this. It's Paul writing. He says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, and whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So the mission of the church then really is to be this voice of God, this presence of God in the world so that God could be known. And when God is truly known, he's seen as glorious, he's seen as infinite, as eternal, as majestic, as powerful. That's what we want our presence to communicate to the world around us, the unsearchable riches of Christ. That people would look into our lives and they would say, Their God must be so good. 
Not because they have so much. Not because life is easier. Not because the path is really straight or less rocky than anybody else's. But because we're so satisfied with Christ. That he is more than enough for us. And that we would be able to live lives and speak words that communicate that well. So this is our mission as a church. To make the glory and infinite wisdom of Jesus Christ known to his creation. And as I said, there's some particular areas of growth that we, want to, that we want to actually experience together. And I'm saying that carefully, particular areas of growth. Because these aren't, again, all the areas. There's a lot of ways that we need to grow. But these are some particulars. There's three things. Maybe you want to write them down. Maybe you're too good for that. I would encourage you to write them down. I did. The first thing, theological clarity. Theological clarity. Theology is really just study of word. It's, it's the study of God's word. Um, knowing God. It's, it's knowledge of God. So we want to grow in clarity of who God is. Knowing him through his word. So... That's the first thing, theological clarity. We think that we can grow in that area this year. The second thing, prayer. We want to become a church that is truly, significantly a praying church. The third thing, evangelism. Uh, I know that none of these are like, wow, I never thought of that before. That's what church is supposed to be about, knowing God, praying, evangelizing. Isn't it kind of alarmingly plain, alarmingly simple that that the elders of your church would come together and be like, where do we need to grow? And that there wasn't anything about like administrative excellence or something like that. I mean, there's nothing that you wouldn't know or wouldn't believe that we need to be really growing in and, and pursuing theological clarity, prayer, and evangelism. We, we really believe that if we grow in these things, that we will be growing as a church in powerful ways that really please the Lord. So what I would like to do this morning, since we're looking ahead for the rest of this year to seek to grow together, not that the elders are hoping to grow in these areas and then just kind of divulge a bunch of knowledge and experience to you so that you'd be inspired by it, but that we are growing in these particular areas as a church I would like to take you through each one of these points and just kind of let you see how we see this happening and why we believe it's so important to the Lord. First of all, let's go back to that Acts 2 passage. You can see there in the beginning it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The apostles' teaching. Now again, there's fellowship, there's breaking of bread here. Um, and, and not that we're just like hitting a grand slam on breaking bread and fellowship, but those aren't the particular areas that we felt convicted by the Lord that we should focus on, although we're definitely focused on those things. But the apostles' teaching, what was the apostles' teaching? It was the scriptures, and it was particularly in their context what the scriptures said from the Old Testament about Jesus. What do we know about Jesus from the Old Testament? All the prophecies that were spoken about him and how he fulfilled all of those prophecies that he is 
Messiah, he's Savior, the one that the world was waiting for to redeem us from our sins and reconcile us to a holy God. Jesus fulfilled those things. So when we say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what you can really hear there is that they devoted themselves to knowing God and particularly knowing him through the lens of the gospel. That by really understanding the gospel and all of its implications for our lives, they would begin to know God better, know him in his purposes, know him from his heart. What is he about? What does he care about? Why does he love us? How can a just God be reconciled to a sinful people through Jesus, through what he accomplished on the cross? So we see there the apostles' teaching. Then we see fellowship, we see breaking of bread, and we see prayers. They were devoted to prayers. And the interesting thing about the way this is recorded here by Luke is he says, the prayers, the prayers. Not just prayer in general, but that there were specific things that they had traditions in praying for. And the way they engaged God when they came together, there was almost kind of a liturgy that they would uh, that, that they were devoted to, and this liturgy of prayers and these specific things they were asking for, they knew for sure from the Scriptures were the heart and the will of God. These are things we know God desires, and so we're going to continually be coming to Him and asking Him to do the things that we know He wants to do. Prayer. Then we see as the passage goes along, that very last verse, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, we know the only way that people can be added to our number through salvation is if the church is proclaiming the gospel and the gospel is being heard and believed. So we know that they were devoted, dedicated every single day to evangelism, to making Christ known. So let's go back through and check on each one of these things, see what some more scripture has to say about it, maybe gain some more clarity. On theological clarity, I'm going to ask you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you want to get there in your Bible, it's an it's a entire chapter. We're going to be there for a minute. I'd encourage you to get there so you're going to turn towards the back of the Bible, not too far. You'll hit 1 Corinthians and then find chapter 2. And this is again... Paul speaking, it was Paul speaking in Ephesians where we got our mission statement. This is Paul speaking again to the church in Corinth now. And he says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have crucified the, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, that is foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We want to grow in theological clarity, and we can see here how that happens. How can you know God? How can you come to really grasp the riches of Christ and how he demonstrates the character and the will and the love of God? First of all, we know that it has to be accomplished by the Spirit of God. It can't just be because we're really motivated right now. I am just super motivated to know what the Bible says. So this year, I promise I'm going to get on a reading plan and I'm going to read from Genesis to Revelation every single word of it. That way, I'll know what it says. That's not theological clarity. Theological clarity is when a spiritual person can discern spiritual things, things that cannot be understood by those who don't have the Holy Spirit. That's theological clarity. We know that this can only be done by the Spirit of God, but the reason why it can only be done by the Spirit of God is the really exciting part. What Paul says here is something that's really understandable for us. How can a person understand what's going on inside of another person? Only that person really knows what's happening in his own spirit, his own thoughts, his own desires, his own will. He can say anything he wants, but to know what's happening inside of a person's heart, only that person can really get to that place and, and have any confidence that he has precise, accurate knowledge of what's happening. So then the same could be said about God. How can anybody know the heart of God? How can anybody know what's happening inside of God, his desires, his will, what he cares about, what he's passionate about? How can anybody know only the Spirit of God can know just like only the Spirit of that person can know their own thoughts? But we have God's Spirit. We have God's Spirit inside of us to teach us, to lead us. As Jesus said, the Holy Spirit was going to come and lead us into all the truth. How can that be? It's because the Spirit of God is inside us to give us theological clarity, knowledge about God that is true, that's clear. We can understand, we can discern because we have the Spirit of God. We can know God's mind because we have the mind of Christ. I think the mind of Christ is one of the most interesting, precise, and profound ways of describing the Holy Spirit's presence inside of us. The mind of Christ, to know what he knows, 
to think how he thinks, to understand what he understands. How can you have any more theological clarity than to actually have Christ's understanding? To see the world through his eyes, to relate to the Father as he does. That's real theological clarity. So that's what we're aiming for. No big deal. I know, I mean, it's just like, check. Of course, this is enormous, right? If we could come to the end of this year and feel like we've made strides towards really grasping the mind of Christ to know the Father the way Jesus knows the Father, to understand through the lens of the gospel what is the heart of God. If we could come to the end of this year and feel like we grew there, wouldn't that be an overjoyous, exciting thing? Uh, we, you know, we aren't really big into, at least in an official sense, uh, catechisms and, and things like that. Although our kids learn some statements from catechisms and a lot, you'll hear things in sermons and things like that but we don't make it like you got to memorize the Westminster Catechism to be a member of the church or something. But the very first statement of that catechism is that the chief end of man, the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. That's theological clarity. That's what we want, to know God, to enjoy him, to enjoy fellowship with him. The second part of that Of course, the first part is that it has to be accomplished by the Spirit. The second part of it is that it has to be accomplished through the Scriptures, through what God has actually revealed to us. How do we know the truth of God? Well, He wrote it down for us. And there's no more concrete, confident way we can know the truth of God than by going to His Word, His written Word. So all of our theological clarity is going to come from the Spirit of God teaching us the Word of God. And this is a deeply spiritual thing. And it takes discipline, spiritual discipline, not human discipline, just like it doesn't take human wisdom to understand. It doesn't take human discipline to actually see this through and be consistent in it. It's going to take a real spiritual, Holy Spirit-inspired kind of discipline for us to be a church that is serious about knowing the scriptures. Knowing the scriptures, not in some trite or some just mechanical way, but in a really heartfelt, desirous way, a way that's sincere. We want to know what it says because we know through knowing it, we'll begin to know God better. Theological clarity. The second thing that we're seeing there in Acts chapter 2 that the church was devoted to and that we feel a particular need to grow in is prayer. And I want to take you to a couple of scriptures to just illustrate what our heart is and, and we know the heart of God is in this. So the first one is Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Again, you're going to, you would continue flipping towards the back of your Bible. And it's a pretty big book, so you should find it if you're leafing through. Hebrews chapter 4. Before we get into this uh, solution here, this, this really confident statement from Hebrews chapter 4, we have to understand the backdrop that there's a big problem. There's a big problem with humanity that we are sinful, 
that we're separated from God, that we are unworthy of a relationship with him, and certainly to draw near to him with any kind of confidence would be a foolish thing in and of ourselves. If we have confidence in ourselves that I'm a good person, I do good things, I'm really nice, or I am I, helpful to others, and based on my effort and based on my own character, I know that God would be proud of me and would be pleased for me to draw near to him and speak with him, to be able to pray. It's foolishness to think that. That's a big problem for humanity. And the solution to that problem is that Jesus has done something that we could never do for ourselves. So the problem of sin, if we could go all the way back, and we will go all the way back next week, in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, you have people falling into sin and their relationship with God is fractured, it's split, and now they're no longer able to have free, peaceful union with God because their sin against a holy God is something that God can't tolerate and be in relationship with. And so God, in his mercy, sets up a system of sacrifice I'll allow you to shed the blood of an animal, your best animals, and the shedding of that blood will be enough for me to draw near and forgive you of your sins. But every single year, there's going to have to be a priest who comes into my presence and slays an animal, sheds its blood, and prays and pleads for the people that God would forgive them. And every single year, this high priest has to come again and again and again offering sacrifices. But Jesus is better than that. Jesus has become this great high priest forever. And not by the blood of goats and bulls and these things, but by his own blood he shed for us for the forgiveness of our sins so that it never has to be done again. And we're not counting on any human person to come and approach God on our behalf offering blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus himself is our great high priest. And Jesus offers his own blood so that it's a permanent forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is prayer. This is approaching a holy God, not coming to him with confidence in ourselves, not coming to him because the greatness of our need, but able to come to him because Jesus has saved us and made us holy in God's sight. And now Jesus as our priest is, is interceding for us and saying, Father, please, Hear them. These are my people, called by my name, forgiven because of the, my blood shed for them. Father, will you hear them? And we draw near with confidence, knowing that the blood of Christ has purified us and reconciled us to this holy God. We draw near to a throne in prayer. We draw near to a throne of grace. Do you ever think of prayer that way? That you're not just nagging God? You're not just talking to God? 
but you've entered into a throne room with a king, a king who's mighty and powerful, perfect in all of his ways, and able to give answers, able to say yes, able to say no, able to say wait, wait, able to say trust me, and he's worthy of our trust. When we pray, we approach a throne, a throne of grace. And the purpose of our approach is that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. God is so willing to help, so eager, so passionate to help his people. How is it that we could neglect prayer to approach this throne of grace with confidence in Christ, knowing that we would receive mercy, knowing that we would receive grace because it is God's disposition towards us. He loves us. David, I think, was well acquainted. Well acquainted with his need, maybe more than any of his generation, King David understood neediness before God. He'd been chased by Saul. He'd been driven out of his own city, just had a band of brothers out in the wilderness, always running, always saving his life, always afraid from people within, from People without, David understood what it meant to need God. He said in Psalm 69, verse 13, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. Now listen to what he says. As he approaches the throne of grace in his time of need, with all of the desperation, with all of the 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 wickedness surrounding him with with a black cloud hanging over him, knowing that this world is not his home and that God is his only salvation and his only hope. Listen to what he says. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. When I think of us, Growing in prayer as a church. I think of us learning to approach God with confidence only in Christ and not in ourselves. Not in our programs, not in our our distinction as a church. Growing in our confidence in Christ that we would learn to say at an acceptable time, oh God, at an acceptable time, not in my time, not when it's convenient for me, not when, well, not when I can best see you moving, not when, I can, not when I can most palate, when I can taste it the best, not when I am most willing to receive and not in the path or in the way that I feel would be most glorifying to you even, not in my own understanding, God, but at an acceptable time to you, O oh God. 
the acceptable time to you, and not because I'm so great, and not because I was so eager to see an answer, and not because my need is so profound, but in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness to come to God with this desperation, but this confidence in him and only in him that we would continue to seek him, to draw near to the throne of grace, to know that he will meet our needs, to know that he is a gracious and a loving father who always invites his children to come. If we who are evil can give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What else do we want from him? His spirit, to walk closely with him, to know him. This is our greatest need, and he's eager to say yes. Eager always to say yes. In fact, the Lord Jesus told his disciples, when you pray, pray according to the will of God. And then you can ask with confidence, believing that you've already received that which you've asked for. To pray prayers that we know God's answer is yes. And in everything else we say, at an acceptable time, O oh God. And maybe the relief of our pain, maybe the relief of our confusion, maybe assent to some level of maturity or growth or fruitfulness will be at the return of Christ. At an acceptable time, O oh God. We'll pursue him, draw near to his throne of grace. We want to grow in prayer. Finally, we want to grow in evangelism. This is a weird one around here. We live in a strange church culture. Evangelism is so prioritized and yet so failingly, so intermittently. This will be on the list of bullet points for areas we need to grow every year. All these things are. There's not going to be some season in which the Lord really cares about this and then some season in which he's like, that's eh, all right, just hang out for a little bit. We want to grow in evangelism. Now here's where I think evangelism gets a little bit wonky, a little bit screwy for the church. When it's an overflow of our own sense of obligation and not an overflow of our love for God. I want you to notice a progression in this Acts 2 passage. You can turn there, but I'm going to encourage you to leave something, a ribbon or, or one of your fingers or something in Hebrews because we're going to jump back. But if you would, turn back to Acts chapter 2. I want you to notice a progression here. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's the theological clarity. And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's the prayer drawing near to the throne of of grace. And then I want you to notice that evangelism, people coming day by day to know the Lord and be saved, is down at the bottom of the description of the life of the church. Do you see that? We're devoted to knowing God, to having theological clarity, 
And they were devoted to coming to the throne of grace with confidence in Christ. And the life of the church began to be an overflow of those things. So that look at verse 43. Way before there's any mention of people coming day by day to know God, it says that the church, the believers, those who knew Christ, experienced all coming upon every soul. And awe came upon every soul. When they knew God, and they're growing in their awareness and their knowledge of God, the character of God, the perfection of God. And when they were seeking to engage with God in prayer, we saw awe coming upon every soul as an outworking, as a fruit of God revealing himself to them. They began to understand him as he truly is, as majestic, as holy, pure, abundantly merciful, kind, powerful beyond description or comprehension, eager to seek and save the lost, eager to grant his children freedom from sin's bondage. This awe, this, this state of being enamored with God that they experienced produced passion for God to be known. This God. It's as if in their gatherings together as they were hearing the apostles' teaching, hearing the gospel proclaimed and taught to understand God through the lens of the gospel of God's grace in Christ. And as they're praying together, seeking God together and experience his grace and his mercy in their needs, it's as if they said, oh, this is God. This is God. And in realizing the depth and the beauty and the wonder of just who God is, they left those gatherings and everyone that they engaged with, they said, you've got to know this God. He's better than you know. He's better than you ever imagined. You don't know him in Christ, and so you don't know him. You haven't seen his grace overflowing for sinners, for wretched, depraved sinners who by no working and no goodness of their own were able to be reconciled to him through Christ. You have not known God if you've known him apart from Christ. Our God is so, so abundantly, magnificently good. He's so good, brothers and sisters. Overwhelmingly good. We don't know that in completion. But the more we know that, let me promise you, that as a fruit of the more we grow in our knowledge and grow in our, our confidence in Christ to come to the throne of grace and receive mercy in our time of need, the more we'll be propelled, compelled, excited to make the glories of this God known to those who don't know.
is evangelism. Not people out of guilt saying certain things and trying to worm their way into certain conversations. I somebody mentioned church? Oh, what church do you go to? Oh yeah, my church, you can come to my church. This is not evangelism. Out of some sense of duty, trying to navigate conversations without offending people, without interrupting the natural flow. It's that we are an interruption in the flow of people's lives by saying God is awe-inspiring in all of his majesty and goodness and wonder and mystery that he would reveal to us. And it's all wrapped up in Christ. You have to know Jesus. You just have to. This is evangelism. And it can happen every day in your home, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, at the park. It can happen in church. It can happen in the parking lot. It can happen at Thanksgiving meals where you know people are just thankful for turkey and not for God's grace. It can happen perpetually because we are perpetually filled with the awe of God. But it's easy to lose that awe. It's easy to slip into just cyclical Christianity. We go to church, we hear some things, we're impressed by those things. We leave and we want to, we want to live in accordance with those things or obey those things or believe those things, but life begins to happen. You got to clock in, you got to clock out. You come home, you got to eat, you got to get the kids here and you got to get them there and you got people to care about and things to pay attention to and it's really, really, really easy to just forget how awe-inspiring God is. The church in Jerusalem was no exception. The Hebrew believers, all was upon every soul. And then later in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer, <coughs> Paul, <laughs> says in verse 32, but recall the former days. If, if, you, can, if you can put yourself in their position of, of having having the former days of when they were walking so closely with God and miracles and wonders and signs were being performed and day by day people were coming to know and be added to their number and they were packing out Solomon's portico, praising God, enjoying his grace together. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves, listen, had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while. It breaks into poetry here. It breaks into song. Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back 
and are destroyed. We are of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Persevering. Persevering not because of some innate perseverance, but because they were enlightened. Because they knew God. Because they had theological clarity. And it was a poignant kind of clarity. It was in their faces. They were experiencing the goodness of God. Every day, living life together, seeking God, seeking theological clarity, praying, approaching the throne of grace with confidence, and so filled with awe and passion for God to be glorified that day by day they were evangelizing their neighbors and people were coming to be saved. Even so much so that when it got extremely difficult, that by being identified with Christ, by making him known, you were having your homes plundered, you're being thrown in prison, having your whole life stolen from you. But did they just tolerate this? Did they just survive this until a better day came? No, he says you joyfully accepted it. Joyfully accepted it. Which reminds us of James, the brother of Jesus, who was there in those days saying, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, knowing that it's producing steadfastness in you. Knowing that you're being sanctified, not knowing that you'll receive it back a hundredfold. Knowing that you are being sanctified. Knowing that you're coming to know God at a deeper level. Experiencing His grace. You count it all joy. I'll joyfully accept anything that comes my way as a result of my obedience to God. To make Him known. To all of His creation. To every nation. So three things that we want to grow in. Theological clarity, prayer, and evangelism. They're not small. They're not gimmies. They're not things that we're just going to stumble into. We're not just going to wake up tomorrow morning and be like, oh my gosh, I know God. I have such confidence in Christ and I can't wait to get to work and share the gospel. It's not just going to happen. It's going to take a spirit-empowered devotion. And the only way we experience a spirit-empowered devotion is to humble ourselves before God and ask Him to do what we know He wants to do. We know He wants this. Amen? We absolutely know it. It's not like theological clarity, prayer, and everybody gets a Lexus. We'll see what he says. We absolutely know God wants to do this. Let's humble ourselves. Let's ask him to do it. Let's devote ourselves to seeing it come to life in us at an acceptable time. He'll grow us up. He'll make us more like Christ. He'll meet us in our times of need. And we'll be so awe-inspired just by him that I think we'll be like Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin after they were mistreated and commanded not to teach in the name of Christ anymore. We cannot help but speak about the things we've seen and heard. 
judge for yourselves. If we just should obey God or obey you, we can't help it. God's too good. He has so overtaken our view, we just cannot stop talking about him. That's the goal for the year. Let's humble ourselves in prayer now. Ask God to do this work in us. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.